I have my baton from last week. We found it. I also have my nunchucks. What did you expect? I'm Asian. All Asians do this. Excuse me, let me finish solving this little math problem here. I'll be right with you. <laughs> we are going to talk a little bit about race today. It's going to be fun. Growing up, Bruce Lee was kind of a hero to me. I, my family and I, we immigrated to the United States in 1981 uh, to the red light district of New York City. We had an apartment in the basement. It was rat and roach infested. And um, it was tough times. It was the worst of times, and it was the worst of times. <laughs> Growing up in a neighborhood like that, walking home from school, I was a latchkey kid, walking to school, walking home from school. Every time I saw uh, a group of uh, other kids hanging out in a street corner or in front of a uh, dime store, my first instinct was survival. And so not only would I uh, cross the street to avoid them, but I would walk actually all the way around the block so I wouldn't even be seen or noticed by these guys. And even then, sometimes they would catch up to me and do what they had to do, I suppose. And every time I had to walk around the block, I would be thinking about Bruce Lee. And I would think, Bruce Lee would never do this. He would never have to. You understand, for an Asian immigrant, this guy was like a hero. Because look at him. Here he is. He's Asian. But he's making movies, not just Chinese movies and then importing, it, importing the movies to America, but making movies in Hollywood. He's married to not just an American, but a blonde-haired white woman. I mean, he was arriving in all sorts of ways. So he was like my hero. And on top of all that, he was, this, he was this stud of a man. And so I'm crossing the street and I'm thinking, Bruce Lee would never do this. And I kind of imagine myself, if I, if I were to walk up to Bruce Lee while he's sitting down having lunch, I can put my thumb, hover right over his left eyeball, and still he would not put his chopsticks down. Because you know why? He knows that any femtosecond he wants to, he could take me out. And I would not see it coming. There I would be on the floor. Bruce Lee was not easily threatened by me or anyone precisely because he was really, really, really strong and powerful. He was secure. Therefore, he was not easily threatened. Now, I, on the other hand, it takes very little for me to feel unsafe. In fact, I think it's most of us. Uh, let me read you a quote from Parker Palmer uh, from his book, A Hidden Wholeness. Though resilient, the soul is shy. The soul is like a wild animal, tough, resilient, resourceful, savvy, and self-sufficient. It knows how to survive in hard places. I learned about these qualities during my bouts with depression. My intellect was useless. My emotions were dead. My will was impotent. My ego was shattered. But from time to time, 
deep in the thickets of my inner wilderness, I could sense the presence of something that knew how to stay alive even when the rest of me wanted to die. That something was my tough and tenacious soul. Yet despite its toughness, the soul is also shy. Just like a wild animal, it seeks safety in the dense underbush, especially when other people are around. If we want to see a wild animal, we know that the last thing we should do is to go crashing through the woods, yelling for it to come out. But if we will walk quietly into the woods, sit patiently at the base of a tree, breathe with the earth, and fade into our surroundings, the wild creature we seek might put in an appearance. We may see it only briefly and only out of the corner of an eye, but the sight is a gift we will always treasure as an end in itself. Unfortunately, community in our culture too often means a group of people who go crashing through the woods together, scaring the soul away. One way that I think I can look at my life is as a search for safety. I think about the six churches that I was part of starting in 12 years and all the other churches that I was part of helping to start as director of church planning. Why was I so driven? What was I seeking in the starting of these churches? And I think if I'm honest, I was looking for a church mostly for myself. In fact, I think that's what a lot of us in the health profession do. We are really trying to find salvation for our own souls, salve for our own needs. That was me, wanting a safe place. I grew up in a pretty legalistic, fundamental church. There were lots of things that scared me about it. There were people at the church that scared me. There were lots of stories to prove that they were scary people. but I have a lot of pain in my life. There's a lot of brokenness in me. My soul definitely is shy. And I would submit to you today that all our souls are very shy, that it takes a lot of work, a lot of convincing for our souls to peek out from the underbush, as it were, and maybe possibly make an appearance. Just because we gather together as a community, as a Christian community, doesn't mean it's a safe place. I think to be a human community, to be a human crowd, is to naturally create maybe even an unfriendly environment for the human soul. It takes coaxing. It takes convincing. I learned through my pain and brokenness uh, that safety isn't everything, though. That I don't just need safety, I also need holy. Because without holy, it didn't matter ultimately if a place or a person or a community or a group was safe. Because it only accepted me but allowed me to stay in pain and stay broken. I needed not just safety but help. And so ultimately what I discovered in my journey towards looking for that perfect community was that I was not looking for a just safe place. I was looking for a place that was both safe and holy. It's not enough that I'm okay letting my soul peek out. 
My soul also is crying out, maybe in silence, for help. And I need and want to be helped. If only I can know that I am also safe. But here's the problem that I discovered trying to navigate sort of the Christian world in the, uh, as sort of an unbeliever functionally. Was that safe and holy don't usually come together. That if I experienced a person or a community as safe, it usually was mutually exclusive with holy. Or if I found somebody with the answers, the antidotes, the help that I needed, they didn't feel to me as safe. And so my soul would stay hidden and not receive the help that it so desperately needed. I needed both safe and holy. Using a typical example, a bar is usually safe. You can sort of come in just as you are. You can sort of be your miserable self if you are miserable. You could be your happy self if you are happy and trying to celebrate. But you're not going to get much help there. It's sort of like a cold-blooded animal. It sort of takes on the temperature of its clients. It doesn't regulate by itself. It's a function of its clientele. But what about a church? A church, a lot of churches, I think, are holy places. They they talk about God and spiritual things, and I can walk into a church and kind of feel like there is help there, but I also don't feel safe more often than not. You know, that if I'm really going through a hard time, maybe I need to actually take a break from church so I can go through hard things. In fact, I have a good friend who used to be a Christian, and at some point she was going through a divorce, and at the time when she needed the most help, she decided that was precisely the time that she needed to take a break from church. Christians were just too much for her. They just kind of oversimplified things and didn't understand and didn't know how to be. There was a lot of anxiety in her Christian community. So she stepped, she felt the need to step away from the church. I don't know what your experience of church and Christians are like, but I can relate to that. I often feel safer with atheists and unbelievers than I do with Christians. And if you're an unbeliever and you ask me how I'm doing, I might actually tell you how I'm doing. But if you're a Christian, I feel all sorts of pressure to put on a happy face and smile and say, oh, you know what? It's cloudy today, but look, I I think there's probably sun on the other side of those clouds. I have to sort of put a positive spin on things or, or I lack faith or I'm not a minister or I'm being negative or don't I understand that God is good and all the time and all the time God is good and well, not really, not in my existential reality no most of the times i don't have perspective most of the times i just need somebody to acknowledge pain and brokenness and i've experienced this on the flip side i flew over 600,000 miles over the last four years um, directing church planning It's a lot of miles for me, especially with four kids. And you can um, 
give your uh, cre- credit to where credit is due to Susie, <clears throat> who's holding down the fort during all that uh, traveling. And uh, one of my least favorite things is sitting down next to a stranger on an airplane. Because if they start talking to you, inevitably, one of the questions they will ask is, so, and it always starts with so, so, what do you do for a living? And as soon as I tell them the truth that I'm a pastor or a professional paid Christian or, oh yes, I get paid to be a Christian. Do you think they want to talk to me more or less? Absolutely less. Absolutely. They, they immediately start reading a book upside down or, or fall asleep. Or, and it's, it's terrible. The reason I hate it is because we're stuck next to each other for three hours being awkward. <laughs> Christian. Non-Christians do not often feel safe with Christians. I don't know if you know this yet. Maybe you're the exception to the rule. And maybe this church is the exception to the rule. And if I can help it, we are going to try to be the exception to the rule. But that's, a, that's towards the end of the sermon. For now, I just want you to feel a little bit bad. Be lumped in with all the others. Bear the family name Christian well. And Christians do not. This family name does not have a good reputation. It does not, my friends. We are not the first group of people that they think about when we say safe people. Or even when we say holy people. But other words like hypocrite. These are the words that trigger, in their mind, Christians and churches. Sad, but soberingly true, if we're honest. So what are we supposed to do? The church is in possession of the holy, but we're often perceived and experienced as unsafe. What do we do? Verse 15. As Jesus was having a meal in Levi's home, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. This has been sort of the cornerstone verse for all the churches that I've ever either directly or indirectly planted. This is the key. Here's this guy, a very local person. You know, I flew 600,000 miles in the last four years. I have no idea how many miles Jesus walked. It wasn't many. It was not many. He was pretty local, just a son of a carpenter out of Nazareth, a small little dinky town that did not produce a lot of superstars. And the reputation was, what good can come, ever come out of Nazareth? That was a common saying. And here Jesus is, this very local person, and he is able, as a leader, to command the broadest spectrum of people to ever follow a leader ever in the history of leadership. What do you make of that? 
How in the world was this one local person able to command such a broad spectrum of followers? Jews, Gentiles, men, women, young, old, sick, healthy, dying, living, soldier, civilian, clean, unclean, acceptable, outcast, rich, poor, the learned, the common. By day and by night, they came to him. How? Why? What was the draw? What was his trick? Who was his agent? Who was his marketing company? Who did his branding? Who was his spin doctor? How in the world did Jesus pull this off? And if you and we can answer that question, we have ourselves a Christian church. The way you and I will know that we are doing Jesus' ministry is by the breadth and spectrum of the people that will come. You know how? Because look, many followed him. Many. It's not just talking about number. It's talking about not just quantity, but quality. And you say, oh, but we're Mercer Island Church. We're mostly a, you know, a white church. I, I did a new demographic study. I did this before I came here. I did it again just to see if there was new data out there. You know, the largest population group on the island is age 40 to 50. Did you know that? I was kind of surprised by that. It's about 16% Asian and growing. The largest demographic moving on to the island is Asian. Did you know that? (laughs) How will we be able to command the kind of ministry spectrum and target group that Jesus commanded? How did he do it? What was his method? And I want to submit to you today the key quality of Jesus that allowed him to do this was that he was both safe and holy. That he was in possession of the holy, and yet he was the safest of people. And between safe and holy, he commanded everybody. He attracted everybody. He titillated everybody. He excited everybody. He intrigued everybody. Everybody, everybody, the many who followed him. One example we have in scriptures uh, of a difference between Jesus and the other religious people. Uh, There's a group called the Pharisees. And these were the most strictest of religious leaders. They were the ones who led the way, who set the standard, and nobody else came close. And these people actually had proximity rules for lepers. Lepers had to shout out, unclean, 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 as they walked the streets, so that Pharisees had enough time to keep the proper amount of distance. Because not only was a Pharisee not allowed to be touched or touch a leper, But even if a Pharisee came just even close to a leper, they were already deemed unclean, and then they would have to go through their ritual washings to get themselves cleaned up again, ceremoniously ceremonially and religiously speaking. So that's one picture. 
of a group of people who were in possession of the holy. But people stayed away from them because they were not safe. And if, if you thought about the word judgmental, the first group of people you thought about were the Pharisees. But in contrast, you know there's a story of, of, a, of, of Jesus and a leper. And there's a poor leper. And instead of the leper going to Jesus, because no leper would come to Jesus, Jesus goes to the leper. And he places his hand on the leper. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean, instead of Jesus becoming defiled, the leper becomes cleansed. He was both safe and holy. That is to say... He was Bruce Lee. Now, why is it that the Pharisees were so so allergic to lepers? It's because their holiness, even though they were in possession of it, it was their own man-made holiness. And because of that, it was fragile. It was easily threatened. They were like the little chihuahuas of the religious groups, who had a constant insecurity, therefore a constant need to bark and yelp, keep the big dogs away. Little dogs bark, 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 and as soon as you get close, they yelp and run away. They have proximity rules. Big dogs, on the other hand, I, I ran into a 110-pound golden retriever in the elevator this morning. And he did not bark at me. In fact, I took a step back. Doesn't need to bark. Because it's not easily threatened. Jesus is truly holy. Therefore, he's not easily threatened. His holiness is not fragile. It's not defiled easily. In fact, it's... His holiness that is infectious and not the disease. And what we learn about Jesus is this, that he was safe, not safe and holy, but safe precisely because he's holy. He's truly holy. And I want to suggest to you today that the reason Christians have such a bad reputation out there is because our holiness, what we what we hold on to so tightly, what we protect with our dear lives, even at the expense of loving other people, this holiness is man-made, and it's fragile, and it's weak, and we're easily threatened. We don't know how to be in the world and not of it. We have built up this castle with a moat and alligators and we want to stay a safe Christian community at the expense of everybody else feeling safe with us. And we are not attracting people. Give me a safe, a truly safe, because he is holy person and you will find me at his feet 24-7. There's going to be a magnetism and a natural draw there. Because, you know why? Because I got problems. My soul is shy, but it doesn't mean it's okay. It's hidden. 
because it's scared. It's a wounded animal cowering in the corner. I want and need help. I know that through and through. And I so wish Jesus would touch me and that he could infect me with his holiness so that I might heal. It is my humble observation that most non-Christians and atheists and unbelievers, the very people we claimed for whom we exist as a church, the very mission by which we justify the spending of all of our resources, this very group of people are not very interested in us. They are happy to just sort of let us do our crazy, weird thing. Just leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. Why is that? And then we have Jesus, who was sometimes almost being crushed by the masses that were following him. Jesus was saved precisely because he was truly holy and thoroughly holy. His holiness was not threatened. It was not corruptible. It was not weak. It was not self-sustained. My friends, I submit to you that safety is a function of holiness. That if you are not a safe person, and if you don't have a lot of unbelievers just wanting to talk to you and feeling a draw to you, Your safety isn't a problem. I think it's actually your holiness. I've heard Christians say in uh, more or less ways that the reason unbelievers don't like them is because they're too holy. They're too Christian. They're even more Christian than Jesus. We are starting a new series today called The Gospel. And then we're going to come to Advent and Christmas and New Year's. And then right after the first, uh, you know, a New Year service on January 6th or something like that, we're going to start a new series related to that called Embodying the Gospel. And through these two series, we're going to talk a lot about what it means that Jesus is the Gospel. You know, in the postmodern world out there, there's a lot of churches who really want to major on the gospel, and their gospel is the gospel. I'm telling you, if your gospel is the gospel, that ain't the gospel anymore. Jesus is the gospel. And so we're going to talk a lot about Jesus, and then we'll spend uh, a couple of months until we hit Lenten season talking about what it means to be the church how to embody the gospel, how to be the recipients of the love of God the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. And my hope at the end of that is we'll begin to understand what it means to be a safe and holy community. For this space to be a safe and holy space. My goal actually is not multi-ethnicity. It's not diversity. I think it can be an effect of the gospel, but the gospel remains Jesus. 
It's not the gospel. Diversity is not the gospel. But we saw what happened to Jesus when he walked the earth. Many, many, many followed him. Many, many, many came to him. Many, many were drawn to him. And I think we are going to see some of that effect happening, but it's going to be sort of collateral damage, unintended consequences. We are going to spend our life and existence as a church lifting up Jesus Christ, and we're going to see what God does with that. But it is so exciting for me as, as a new pastor here to think about what it would be like if this was a safe and holy place. I want to give you one word that captures this for me. It's the word sanctuary. You know, back in the dark ages and middle ages, churches were actually safe places for criminals. And so what they would do, and this was uh, written into the law, they had to just cry sanctuary. And police enforcers of the law could not set foot into the church and arrest they could not arrest this individual they were searching for. And so it was a safe place for criminals. Can you imagine that? And simultaneously, it was also a holy place. It was where people felt like God was present. And there was beautiful music. A place that was both safe and holy, I think, is captured in the word sanctuary. And so if you leave with one word today, think about this word, sanctuary. That we want to be a safe and holy place. Now, uh, I want to conclude this sermon by uh, painting a picture of the context in which you and I are now being called, I think, maybe in a new way to do ministry. A new way to justify our existence as a church. This is from the Pew Research Center. It's a little bit dated. I think it's 2008, uh, but their projections are still pretty good. In 2005, there are 296 million people in the United States. In 2050, there will be 438 million people in the United States. 82% of the increase will be from immigrants. What do you think about that? 82%. One in five Americans will be foreign-born, and that's an increase from one in eight in 2005. Whites will be the minority at 47% by 2050. The elderly, that is, those over 65, will double. 37 million to 81 million. The majority of people living in the good old U.S. of A. will be unmarried. Okay? It is a tough and strange and awkward and weird time to be white in America. Can I, can I just give that to you, a lot of you? You know, it's, it's a really interesting time. There's a lot of anxiety about being white in this country. 
especially in the covenant too, as we're trying to be on the cutting edge of this. You know, I was thinking about this. African Americans, they want to celebrate their heritage. It's called Black History Month. White people want to celebrate. It's called racism. It's terrible. It's like I have, I have conversations with my white friends and I say, hey, you're an ethnicity too. What's your ethnicity? How can we acknowledge that? How can we celebrate that? But there is something to be acknowledged, and th- that is this, that there is a shift in power and privilege and majority happening in this country. And that's what this, these graphs and the research is indicating. We are living in a changing world. And it's not, don't, don't be fooled. It's not just about skin color. It's not about the shape of the eyes or the height of the you know, stature of a person. It's about culture. It's about small little tiny assumed things that we never think about. And it's going to get painful and awkward and uncomfortable. And the temptation is going to be to flee. For my candidating sermon, I called it white flight. And I asked you not to leave just because now there's an Asian guy. If this is, I do not represent the Asian invasion. We all, especially those of us who understand the ministry of Jesus, we have to set both hands to the plow, I believe, and commit to this ministry of reconciliation that God has committed us to in the person of Jesus Christ and now through his church. I don't know how things are going to all shake out. You, I, look, I look out here and I see more and more diversity. It feels like almost every week. I have three kids at West Mercer, fourth grade, second grade, and kindergarten, and we just got their class pictures. And with each younger class, the number of non-whites are increasing. Now, I want to know that you believe that God has called us to be church right now at this time for such a time as this that God has brought us all here to be a safe and holy people, to embody the gospel, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The future, slide eight, will be multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-generational, multi-life stage, and multi-income. Can you handle the truth? It's not about pluralism. I end with this one story. Uh, A British author and artist named Edward Docks, he's a secular man, and he wrote a secular article called The End of Postmodernity. And in this article, he talks about how postmodernism came to be and why, he argues, postmodernity is dead. And this is basically what he says. I'm summarizing for you. He says, post-modernity rose up into power as a way to give voice to the minority. It wanted to let people know that even the minority voice is also valid. It doesn't have to just be the opinion of the majority that counts. But the minority opinion matters as well. 
And therefore, it sort of snowballed from there, and it became, therefore, everything matters. Everything is important, and at some point, everything is true. Therefore, everything is relative. There is nothing that is absolute. And it became, to quote now Ravi Zacharias, a universal solvent that cannot be contained because it even dissolves the very container in which it is being contained. For example, if you say, if postmodernism comes along and says, there is no such thing as absolute truth, that very statement dissolves itself. Because even the statement that it just made is no longer true. And so if you say there is absolutely no absolute truth, it's gone as soon as it leaves my mouth. And so Edward Dock says, now it has become just another tool that's put on the shelf alongside every other thing that has come and gone. And he says, then what is true? What 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 what? Do we want? If, if pluralism and everything being relative, is, it's not the truth anymore, then what is true? And he says what we are in an age of is in, we're in an age of authenticity. We want something that's real. And so the word that's sort of hip is not so much truth anymore, but it's more something that's authentic and real and of high quality. And that's why I asked the church to come together as just one service rather than have two separate different services because the worship wars, it's not about style anymore. It's really about quality and authenticity. Give me a hymn that's done well and I will sing it with all of my heart and experience the living God through it. Give me a chorus or a praise song that's done poorly and I'll be on my phone checking my email. The world is hungry for safe and holy. The world is hungry for something that's authentic and of high quality. And I believe that's why God's called me here. And I believe that's why we are together, Mercer Island Covenant Church. Would you bow your heads with me? God, I am really, really jazzed, um, excited, and hopeful about the potential church. Yes, this present, current, actual church is pretty good too. But I know that all of us in our hearts, we really are longing for the potential church that we can be, that you have called us to be. You've called us to embody Jesus Christ who is safe and holy. And we will know that as we draw the masses and as healing takes place. As we together experience something that's of quality and authenticity. God, as we spend the next several months together unpacking what it means to be safe and holy. I pray that we'd be growing as a church, but really drawing many, many. Uh, onto yourself. 
I pray that evangelism and, and growth in our church would not just be a uh, one-off event or a rare phenomenon, but it would be the norm and part of the culture as it was in your ministry. I pray that we would regularly be running out of food and we would have to feed thousands through miracles, even as you did. I pray that people with acute and immediate needs would come in our midst and they would experience the natural and supernatural healing power of a community that's embodying the Holy Spirit. And I pray that people can experience this church and in a significant and profound way experience the very person of Jesus Christ himself. So God, I submit this church, onto your good hands. I commit them to you. I ask you to do with us as you will, as you please. Let us be effective here for the mission that you have called us to do. Lord, do your thing and do the thing that only you can do. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. In Jesus' name.